Police Department, I would like to report a crime. The comedian Lauren Lodudice hacked into my brain and wrote a book called Inside Melania, what I know about Melania Trump by impersonating her. What does she know about me besides for stepping into my skin for the last three years and her impersonation? You can find the book that me and Donald do not want you to read at www.insidemelania.com. You're listening to a podcast from RadioMisfits.com. This is episode 122 of Reconcile the Isle. What on earth is going on? Rocket Man. Puerto Rico. Russia, 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 Russia. Eight accusers. Several allegations. Thousands of cases. Charlottesville. Horrific shooting. Deadly school shooting. The third deadly mass shooting in a week. Category four. California wildfires. Entire ecosystems are collapsing. Government shutdown. I've never seen this country divided like this. This is astounding to me. Reconcile the Isle. Welcome to Reconcile the Isle on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. On this show, my characters and I are figuring out how we can have meaningful dialogue about difficult topics. My name is Lauren Lojudice. Today, we're going to speak with special guest Fritz Breikhout. But first, let's go to our Stupid People stupid segment. People segment. segment. For those of you who are new here, it's the part of the podcast where we salute stupidity because what unites us across all boundaries, what unites the world, is that we hate stupid people. My dad rants about the stupidest person he's seen that week, and we rate their assholeness in rectums. So here's our segment, Stupid People with my dad, Charles LaGiudice Jr. Marie called Con Edison the other day. Now, Marie's good on the computer and all this stuff. Three hours on the phone on hold, all right? And then after three hours, they tell her, you got to go to your computer and do it. Now, I'm not a computer person, and Marie is pretty good, but she had to get help. What happens to, like, somebody who's 85 years old and they're still listening to Bing Crosby on the radio because you got these fucking smart TVs, which aren't so fucking smart, in my opinion, okay? All right? Uh, They're fucking imbeciles. They they don't even register on an IQ test, these fucking smart TVs. All right? And she had to get somebody on a computer to disconnect the electricity in the house that she just sold. Okay, in the condo. All right. Otherwise, I guess you pay until you're dead if you're an old person. <laughs> you pay like God forbid you want to shut off your electricity. You're 88, and you're lucky enough. You're you're unlucky enough to live to be the oldest woman in the country. Is 116. You won't be living there. You still be paying your electric bill for 34 fucking years. Those <laughs> fucking jerk offs. You know. But what do we give Con Ed for oh, charging Con Ed, people? Con Ed. Con Ed definitely gets a five rectum because I have friends who work for Con Ed and like when they didn't want to do a job, they had to like uh, clean out the, the manholes because they had to go in there to look at stuff. So they would go the day before with the truck with the hose and then they would come by and hang out on the avenue. Aren't you working? No, we, we told them there was a car parked on top of the manhole, okay? So when you're paying your electric bill, just think of those fucking mutts, okay? All right? Every <laughs> time they cash their check, they the check should have bounced, you know? Wow. People are so stupid. Let's get to our interview with special guest Fritz Breithaupt. Fritz Breithaupt is a provost professor at Indiana University. Bloomington since 1996. Since 2010, he's a full professor of Germanic studies, an adjunct professor of comparative literature, and an affiliate professor of cognitive science. He co-founded the European Union Center at Indiana University in 2005 and served as its co-director until 2007. In Germany, he is most well-known outside of academic circles as a columnist for Zeit Campus Magazine and the author of the recurring feature, Ask the Professor. In 2009-2010, he was the Distinguished Remax Scholar of Indiana University. He was twice in 2003 and 2009 won the grant of the Alexander von Humboldt Foundation, which is granted in recognition of researchers' entire achievements to date 
to academics whose fundamental discoveries, new theories, or insights have had a significant impact on their own discipline and who have expected to continue pursuing cutting-edge achievements in the future. His 2017 book, The Dark Sides of Empathy, which we will talk about today, offers an analysis of Donald Trump's technique to draw empathy to himself. The book appeared on the German bestseller list in February 2017. Now, if you ever get the feeling that some people who you know feel bad for other people are actually in this interesting way being assholes, you're going to want to hear this episode. And you can always sign up at laurenlogie.com slash podcast to get reminders when we publish this every other week. My co-host, Melania Trump, uh, you said you were too busy to do this interview. Were you doing campaign events or something? No, I was quarantining in my glam room to escape Donald's fart cloud. Oh, is Donald sick? No, I just putting more bacon in his McMuffin so that he could stop growing old. You're what, Melania? Okay, well, listen, this is the FBI. I didn't hear a thing. La, 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 la. All right, let's go to the interview with Fritz Breitau. Thank you, Fritz Breitau, for being on Reconcile the Isle. Wonderful. Thank you for having me. Okay. The broad scope of your book is that empathy is often seen as a panacea, like a magic pill for oh, yeah. a lot of social problems. And broadly speaking, before we get into specifics, why isn't that the case? Well, I would not say that empathy is all bad. No, I think we are really, we are empathetic beings. Our brain developed for us to have empathy. However, it is exactly not this one thing that will make the world better. No, empathy is a part why our world is as it is. It's a polarized world with tensions, where people have animosities and all of these kind of things. So empathy, in many cases, does a lot of good things, but it can also bring us apart mm. and lead us to exploit each other even better. Because when you have empathy, it's better, it's easier for you to exploit other people in a persuasive way and to squeeze exactly where it hurts. And we're going to get into all the ways that that happens. Um, so I wanted to read this right here because um, I was thinking about my, my own work in this. So, so empathy is like a sixth sense, which you perceive the world. As soon as we are in contact with other people, we begin to see and experience the situation from their perspective. Mm -hmm. um, and that's kind of what I do when I'm with and came up with a character as I try to see what it is, but I come up with a take on it. And you say later on, Irony is the way out of that, um, where I'm not mired in their perspective. Then I have to take a step back and I think, well, what's, what's the point? What's the take? What's my point of view? And so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit on th that process, on irony as a way out of it, the trap. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. You um, describe here one of the dangers of empathy, which is that we over-empathize. We kind of, we lose ourselves in other people. This is something, this is wonderful. I mean, this can be a very positive thing that you as an actor, as a moderator, try to see how does this Fritz guy click? And you're doing that already. And in the end, you have a German accent if I succeed here, <laughs> if you succeed. But it can go too far. We can fully lose ourselves in such a way that we cannot come back. In negotiations, we may go a little bit too far. Um, and then in extreme cases, we fully, fully lose ourselves as in Stockholm Syndrome, the hostage identification syndrome. So we need ways coming to return to ourselves. Empathy is a good thing if we can manage and master it. Yeah. And so irony, the, the kind of thing where you suddenly start to can laugh about it again. And suddenly you realize too, okay, there's an outside, irony is always an outside perspective. I know something that you don't know, or we both agree that we don't mean what we're just saying. You're taking outside positions, which throws you back out of perspectives or can do that and can throw you back to yourself. So, Do you think that, yeah, there's something with like, you know, um, especially college age kids are like, you know, there's identity formation at that, usually at that time. And people have it at different times of their life when they're trying on different identities and maybe for whatever reason in different parts of their life or especially in the college age, there's a lot of that going on. Do you think that like it takes you a while to start to laugh at that part of yourself that was taking things so seriously at the time? Is that part of what you're talking about? Yes, yes, I, I think I am. I think it would also explain why it is so hard if someone laughs at you at the wrong moment. 
Now, I have teenage mm. kids at, at this point. So there's certain things. So if you would tell me, oh, Fritz, according to your book, you need to laugh about your kids more often, I'll get into big trouble. They are in a stage where there are certain things that I cannot laugh about and they don't want anyone to laugh about because they're trying it out. They're trying to fit different identities on, like different gloves, different wigs, and they're doing all of those kind of things. Um, yes. So at that moment, you're vulnerable for that. You don't want that outside perspective because you're not ready yet. Yeah. But in the moment you can, you feel so much better about it. Like uh, there's a show Pen15 in which these two 30-somethings play themselves when they are like 13, 14. Huh. And it is done. They are so vulnerable in a way. I don't think that 99% of child actors could do because they're able to have this perspective and give you like the raw vulnerability than like a kid to try to explain to a kid to like be that as they're going through that. It just, it's not the same. And you want to hide under the pillow when they do, when they show you <laughs> yourself. You're like, oh, <laughs> I understand that. So I could totally say like it work. Now, how is empathy traditionally understood and defined? And like, why is that a problem? How do people traditionally see it? And why is that a problem? Well, first of all, the, the thing is exactly that we don't have one traditional understanding of empathy, but several. Some people would think about that empathy means we understand each other better. I understand what you're feeling, like as an intellectual endeavor. And we can do that. Yes, we can slip into roles. Another one is that we watch someone and we start to share their feelings. We ourselves produce the feelings and we are fully going through that experience of that person ourselves. And then there's a third notion, which all people often bring in, which is pity, um, humanitarian aid. Mm. Someone moves me and I'll donate money. I'll do something or I help them right away. Now, these three are meaning the intellectual understanding, the emotion sharing, and the helping are only loosely related. And so we bring them often together. And because they're somewhat, they use the same name for them, we think that if we do one thing, if we understand people, we will help them too. Or we share emotions, therefore we must understand these people correctly or understand them better. And that actually is already one of the mistakes, that we think the one leads to the other. We know the understanding part and the emotion sharing, for example, use different routines in the brain. So there is not much, there's actually no overlap. The two can coexist, but they don't have to. So that's already on the conceptual side, a problem here that people talk about different things, but they, they think that if one happens, all the others will be there too. And that's not the case. We will not automatically help just because we understand. Yeah. And just to, to jump in, like for listeners, that's basically when someone tries to tell you about yourself and you're like, you don't fucking know shit about me. That's generally, that's the moment. That's what's happening. Okay. Continue. <laughs> yes. 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 I'm glad that you're using plain English here. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> this is, this is the thing of the professor. I have lofty words and concepts and stuff yeah. like that. I don't know. Exactly. Exactly. Thank you. Yes. So the next problem is that people have this expectation that when we have empathy, this will be good for everyone. And I would say, well, we have to be more sober here. Empathy is good for the empathizer. We know that people have a lot of empathy live longer. They tend to be more happy. They're more balanced and stuff like that. So yes, please have empathy. But it's not always good for the person we have empathy with. Mm -hmm. This is the odd thing. Often that person could be exploited. We kind of belittle them in the process. We dominate them in some cases. So that's already one of the things where I would say, yeah, empathy is not always the best thing in the world for those people. Mm. For example, the, the helping situation. I have a lot of things about dark sides of empathy and we'll, I'll pin to some of those. But there's always at one point, someone then tells me, Fritz, yeah, okay, I see your point. Maybe, not really, but yeah, maybe. But empathy must be good because we help other people. We understand them, we help them. And here I say, well, it can be that we help others, but it's not so much that we empathize with them. It's rather, in many cases, we identify or empathize with the helper figure who then reaches out to these other people and helps them, the, the, the people in need and so on. But that means... It's a different process. It's, it's a white more. savior figure, which is so people are so yes. frustrated about. It's so prevalent. And so like, and so then I guess, what are the problems with that? Because I found that really interesting. And like yeah. in terms of like that, you expect people that, first of all, you want gratitude. And second of all, you don't really want them to get better. 
Yes, exactly. Exactly. The best thing for you in the world is if they admire you, you're this kind of the white savior figure. I also like the emphasis on whiteness here, which is also interesting. But the savior figure, you want to be admired. And therefore, it's good if they stay in, the, in misery because they're better suited than to keep admiring you. Exactly. Yeah. It's a lot about self-glorification in that case. And yes. I think that is not rare. That is not rare. It's a fairly common process that we see in many processes. Where do you see that? Like around American culture or around the world? Well, I mean, I mean, let's see. first let's use an example that many people know. Schindler's List, yep. the movie. That's kind of an incarnation of that. You think that movie is about teaching about what my ancestors did in Germany, the horrors, and finally really bring the, the victims of the concentration site mm-hmm. camps to life and let you experience that. But instead, it's about identifying with the hero Schindler, who then, yes, of course, an amazing man historically, he did save all these people. But the focus figure, again, this mediator is always this helper. So it kind of, it gives us an access to that, but it blurs the picture too. Mm. And I think that's kind of this model. We often have these mediating figures that can also be an imaginary figure that we can, we see some problems somewhere, whether it is the, the people, right? I mean, the homeless people in our neighborhoods mm-hmm. or whether it is um, a problem that we know from television or mm-hmm. internet, the miseries of the war zones, the refugee yeah. zones, Syria, right? Other mm-hmm. regions to the plight yeah. of the people in the Mediterranean Sea. Again, we need the helper figures, the mediators who welcome them, who yeah. to focus us. I studied abroad in Tanzania and uh, Kenya, ah. and and I was in. Um, I remember I was in Dar es Salaam, and I happened to just I just made a random friend who brought me there, meaning brought me to uh, like boys club, and he, I know the, I know the place. Yeah. Okay. Dar es Salaam, the boys club. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, I know the the boys and girls club. Yeah. Oh, yeah. very cool. And the kids would pose like they saw this like person because when white people come there, they come to take pictures of them posing in like suffering situations. Like, look at us, like, like we were washed. And I, I, that was deeply disturbing. It's kind of what we're talking about. Like people are going there to try to find this trope and like kids, because kids are so sensitive to what people expect. These kids were like six years old. They like mm-hmm. have internalized what these people were expecting in order to give them help was for mm-hmm. them to be helpless, which I thought was really disturbing and really interesting. That really, I still remember that to this day. And when I read your book, I thought, Wow, I think that's what it might might have been what I was seeing. And then I thought you had like cynicism is actually a great way to help people. Can you explain that? My personal memories of Dar es Salaam as well. Um, mine were more from the AIDS crisis when it first hit there. Mm. Especially there were similar moments where where some AIDS victims then I mean was I mean lining the streets at that mm-hmm. point um, were trying to also perform up to that kind of level of it, and were yeah. kind of trying to outposes that had nothing to do with their ailments yeah, and so yeah, yeah. to kind of fit that picture of someone who needs help and who will then yeah. confirm the helper figure, the white person, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so exactly. Yeah, yeah, I was reading in the Times too about like kids in Harvard who from don't have enough money to stay home or their home situation isn't good. They have to fill out a form with like check marks. So they're like, we're just trying to out trauma each other because there's a limited amount of spaces <laughs> just to perform <laughs> this like, oh, it's the word, you know, just so that's it's interesting. Now, the German refugee crisis, can you talk about that? Because there was at first some empathy, and then there was a backlash. And how did that operate? That was an absolute amazing moment in the recent history. I mean, really one of the most significant moments of the 20th century when three political leaders overnight decided to open the borders for refugees from crisis areas, including Syria, Libya, and Mm -hmm. other areas as well, Um, Iran as well, and Iraq the Iranians could hardly flee. At that moment, the German public was kind of suddenly aroused as if it was kind of like a snow white kissed and coming out of something mm-hmm. um, in a metamorphosis. All of the German population, I mean, a large part of it was completely enthusiastic, said, yes, why didn't we do this earlier? Absolutely, there, there's a civil war. Millions of people are homeless. Kids uh, are dying from the gas attacks and so on. Of course, we have to take them. We are a rich country. We can do this. And there was this huge enthusiasm. We even have this, Germans always have these long words. We came up with a new word for it, (laughs) welcome culture. And the Germans flocked the train stations because the refugees would arrive by train to Germany. Germany doesn't have a direct border to that region. 
and there would be train after train and there would be people coming and they had welcome packets. They kind of grabbed what they had at home to give it to people, money and all of these things. It was really amazing and very moving. Now, the problem with that was, um, and I'm, I'm all for this. This was wonderful and it's the right thing. Mm-hmm. But I think for a lot, not all, for a lot of Germans, this was something that emotionally wrapped them up but they didn't really, um, I mean, they thought they were empathizing, but they were not really kind of reaching out to these people whom they didn't know. They were more identifying with the German leader, Angela Merkel, mm-hmm. who had kind of given a famous speech about this, that we could do this and welcome. And they identified also with some other helpers who were ready at these checkpoints mm-hmm. and so on. And all the pictures that were then all over the mm-hmm. internet and the social media about this welcoming culture. And that worked for a while. And led to a lot of good actions. But then it completely turned around after three months, four months, five months at the very latest. Suddenly it flipped. Suddenly there were a lot of negative sentiments coming out about the refugees. They were seen as lazy, as not kind of doing enough. Some were criminals. So that was immediately picked up by the press because people wanted to hear it. Mm. Um, And so suddenly from this welcoming them, it became a complete rejection of them for mm. a lot of people in the country. Not all. I mean, the borders are open mm-hmm. and there's still a routine process that happens. A couple of million people or more than a million people enter the country in the first year of this. So how I read this is people were really more identifying with a helper figure. They were not prepared for true empathy with these people. They didn't really want to know them that well and mm-hmm. know their backgrounds and their individual mm-hmm. stories and their traumas and their plights. Mm-hmm. Many had lost family members in the civil mm-hmm. war or in the attempt to cross the borders. They really just wanted to feel good about themselves. And so mm-hmm. they wanted to see by opening the borders, this will have great effects. Everything will be good. These <laughs> people will probably learn German in three months and will immediately start to doing good things and everything will be over. But of course, when you come over, just barely escape with your life from a war zone, mm-hmm. and lost family members and this and that, you're not ready for embarking on this new yeah. thing and immediately kind of embrace your white savior figure in that way that people had hoped for. Yeah. It's like, you know, that's where the cynicism comes in. It's like, these people are going to come, they're going to be really tore up, they're going to be a little traumatized, it's going to take them a while. That's where the cynicism comes, like if they're, you're yeah. real about yeah. it, you're yeah. just like, it's going to be tough. They're not going to know what to do. Like they're going to be not, they're gonna, it's going to take them a while to learn German, especially the older, you know, like if you want to be, that's the little, I guess that would be, I, for me, that's real. Like about yeah. how people, their true situation, but I guess people have this idea. They'd be yeah. down to Oktoberfest. And yeah, exactly. Exactly. Put the full outfit on in no time. It's like, well, they can do a lot, you know, I don't know if they're like partying. Yeah. yeah. The German leather pants were not the first item. Yeah, that yeah. You know, <laughs> exactly. In their mind. Exactly. It's just, it's it's the I know die. Like, oh. <laughs> it happened during Oktoberfest. So that's actually, oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's September leading oh, up. Oh my October, God. Yeah. So yeah. That was, that is funny. But cynicism, I mean, there is a good word about cynicism. I don't want everyone always being a cynic. No one would want that. However, a lot of the humanitarian aid workers that I've met are all around the mm-hmm. world, including in places like Tanzania, they often have a certain dose of cynicism in it. And they say, they know, well, they reach out to people, they do something, and then their cynics say, yeah, it might even work. I mean, they, they don't overestimate themselves. They don't yeah. overestimate other people in this, but they still do it because they know it's the right thing to do. Um, to give the yeah. chance for it, but not have this emotional investment on it of an immediate return. Mm-hmm. And empathy often expects that immediate return. Um, not always, not all forms of it, but that's one of these empathy traps. Mm. Is that Interesting. Instead of helping people, we are really identifying with a hero. It's kind mm-hmm. of one of the, for me, one of the five dark sides of empathy. And how do we, um, when you think about, how we block empathy from other people, how, like there's different mechanisms you talked Mm -hmm. about. How, how does that operate? We actively block empathy Mm -hmm. for other people. The first thing is, and this is, I mean, blocking empathy sounds cruel to people. I would say, well, no, we all do it. And actually we have to learn it. We have to be careful not to exhaust ourselves too much. If we have too much empathy in all situations, we get exploited, we get overly exhausted. This happens to medical doctors in this country Mm -hmm. and also in Europe. 
medical doctors get a, what I would call a full empathy burnout very quickly. Mm. And the thought of them um, experience such a degree that they can't really recover from it. They will remain virtually, I mean, empathy dead, at least in professional situations. But this spills over on private life too. It's an overwhelming job. Being mm-hmm. a medical doctor is hard and the time pressure plays a big role in it too. They go mm-hmm. from one person to the next. And in, I mean, it's really two thirds are affected. These are very strong data and very dangerous. Mm-hmm. So what these doctors have to learn is kind of do a balancing act. They have to manage their empathy. They have to build up blocks to protect themselves and then so still have some empathy and resolve it or balance themselves in a good way. Because Medical doctors with empathy are better for the patients. And this is where the dilemma comes in. Patients are more likely to take the medicine. They take them more seriously and all of these kind of things. So we need empathy. But often in order to have empathy, at some places, you have to block it elsewhere. Mm. So, And we all do this. We acquire the ability to do this, often without really being very aware of it. We take cultural stereotypes out of it. Mm -hmm. We use in-group, out-group biases, all kinds of things and so Mm. on and so on. And then the question is, of course, when do we still have empathy? And that's for me, that's actually for me, my own research question. How do we acquire these blocks, but blocking kind of systems, but how do we then still break through these blocks? Mm -hmm. How do we still allow it? When do we allow it? And that's individually different. We have different ways to, and there's many forms of when we do allow it. Because like side taking was one way we do um, when we feel like identified with the side. And it seems like confirmation bias makes it like that's what's happening right now. You think, Mm -hmm. how can people still support Donald Trump? And then you realize like their confirmation, everything is just like confirming the bias they had for him. Mm -hmm. And so then it's just like a constant confirmation of of their belief system. Um, And this all happens to everyone. The confirmation Mm -hmm. bias is really strong. It just seems stronger now that you don't actually have another opinion in your life because if you only are in a media bubble and a Google bubble and a Facebook bubble, Mm -hmm. you would actually have no data to support against your point. Yeah. And sometimes actually data that are opposing your viewpoint can also even help you to confirm it even more too. I fully agree to everything you said here, and the bubbles play a huge role in this. But even within the bubbles, of course, you produce often the image of the other side. Mm. So in the bubble, the Trump supporters, let's say, there is a bubble of what the Democrats do or what the others are Mm -hmm. doing right now. And within the Democratic bubble, of course, there's there's a very constant reference point right now is Donald Trump. And, Mm -hmm. And it serves different functions in these kind of things. Yeah. So, yes, one of the functions of that is by reproducing the other side constantly is it constantly allows you to take your side again. I mean, of course, to say, confirm, yes, I know I'm for or I'm with Trump or I'm mm. against them. Either way, you can constantly find reasons to support it. Yeah. And he's, you talked about where we're on the subject of Donald. He is a master of empathy. You talked about how he's made himself into a victim hero, and especially in his first State of the Union address, American Carnage. And he's changed the American dream to be a victim hero. And they complain about people who act like victims. I mean, it's so twisted. So how did this happen? Yeah. Well, I was actually writing on empathy during the primary when he became the candidate for the Republicans. And I saw at that point, there was a whole suit of these, these mostly uh, male candidates up there. Mm-hmm. And they kept debating. And I noticed, okay, he's obviously different, but he's winning the debates constantly. At least in my mind, he was always from the beginning on, he was the winner. And why? How did he do it? Well, he just kind of always positioned himself as the one against everyone else. Mm-hmm. And he did that in the most convincing way by sometimes saying foolish, stupid things so that everyone points to him. And then he can suddenly present himself that way. I'm the one against all of these. And then that became his campaign. I against all the swamps of Washington, D.C. bureaucratization. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm the wall against the Mexico, the flood of these horrible immigrants. Then, of course, th- these horrible feminists and, and gender people and all of that. We don't want that. So I'm the only candidate who's against all of these things. Mm-hmm. So he constantly managed to play out that role. And he did that very successfully. I mean... He even survived, of course, this sex tape. I mean, this was like, I mean, that seemed to be the out kind of thing. And he was, he shot back. He shot back. Hey, locker room talk. Then he turned against the media. 
you should not bring those things that you say in private out. That's kind of, now it's more suddenly the bad thing is the media. Again, mm-hmm. all the media against him. And then he turned to yeah. Bill Clinton, of course, right away. But that was his kind of thing, always one against many. And it has worked until, I would have said, until February. I had no doubt that he will win re-election. So I predicted, I mean, I predicted, I put it in print in June, in the primaries, that he would get elected. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) I mean, it was a narrow win of a bet, but but, uh, it proved right. Because he, unlike Hillary Clinton in those places, he could draw emotions to himself. This one against many. Bingo. I mean, you know where you want to stand on that one. It worked on me. I could, I could see myself in him. I politically am very far apart from him, but I can see it. It works. It works. Yeah, there's something very. I had a knuckle uh, that was like this. This very narcissistic. Bring it brings sucks attention to him, and mm-hmm. it hurts people in the process. And you don't you don't start to hate him until he hurts you. I mean, that's a, nar- a malignant narcissist, um, you know, down the line. I read his, have to read his tweets in, in the morning, every, I, I very unfortunately, shoot me. But I have to write comedy about him. So I have to know what he's lying about yeah. today. And so, it, I mean, it's, he's just such a big, everything is so, me, 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 me. Everything is always with like, he, and now he has no, no one to pin it on. He is now the president. So now he has to say, I am, it's the deep state. There's always going to be something yes, else. Yes, yeah, yes. Always something else. And now it's like no one ever supports him until they just say exactly what he wants them to say. He hates Fox now and he's like into this own white yes. supremacist bullshit. You know, it's, it's everything just to feed this like fucking black hole in him and in us. And I thought this is also interesting on page 115 of your book. So you talk about how people become radicalized, right? And it says the, the way that these, these researchers, Macaulay and Mas, Masklelenko, that basically people identify themselves. We are a special or chosen group, superiority, who have been unfairly treated and betrayed injustice. No one cares about us or will help us distrust. And the situation is dire. Our group and our cause are in danger of extinction, vulnerability, which is how yeah. people recruit terrorists. Yes. <laughs> Yes, yes. It's the same. Mm. Am, I, am I seeing this as what Donald Trump does? No, this, this is, I mean, it, it's not specific to terrorism. I mean, it doesn't make um, Donald Trump a terrorist or something like that, but it's a structure that is enormously powerful for side-taking. Side-taking is, is one, of the most, uh, one of the strongest initiators of drawing us into, into empathy, even if there's a, there's a conflict we don't even care about. But suddenly we are very much tuned to kind of take a side which is, and so on. Yeah. And then we take the perspective of that side. Once we take the perspective, you suddenly feel emotions that go along with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The other side looks more and more evil and all of that. It's very attractive. And then it's a confirmation, of course, we think our side taking was the right one because the yeah. other guys are evil. Yeah, I mean, that's what they do with, like, with um, white folks. It's like, we are yeah. the special group. We have been unfairly treated. No one cares about us. The situation is dire. And if I mean, that's like down the line, yeah. white supremacists jargon, yes. which is yeah. filtered into mainstream discourse. Yeah, it's like the sleeper cells. And suddenly, I mean, it's not just the, I mean, the sleeper cells in the, in the, the Islamic world of terrorists, yeah. but also the sleepers here in America. I mean, there's suddenly everyone, wherever you are, whether you are in upstate New York or whether you're on the, the West in, in the Rockies or something like that, you can suddenly see yourself that, oh, we are called upon you. No one is holding up the banner for our side here. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And as if they were like thinking and grown up believing without even really being taught. Yeah. And it's exactly. And taking such an identity then, of course, can easily be constantly confirmed. There's another conflict coming up and there's yeah. something else and so on. And and Donald Trump, I mean, once that sticks, it really sticks beautifully. I mean, people really kind of constantly align himself, themselves with him. What's the trick to beating the victim hero who has so aligned himself with such a, um, he's always the victim. He has called mm-hmm. to, to people feel superior when they support him because they are in this mm-hmm. in-group. And how do, you, how do you defeat that? Well, a couple of things. The first one is that we have to understand here how much the media have played along. Donald Trump, here's something good he did um, without wanting to, has saved the critical press. I mean, the New York Times circulation was, I think, around one million at the time he got elected. It almost doubled in the first six months after he Mm. got elected. Similar things are true for the New Yorker, for Mm. the Atlantic Monthly, Washington Post, The Guardian, Mm. American Edition. Suddenly the critical press got big, but at which cost? 
by constantly having Donald Trump as kind of the cover boy, by constantly having yeah. a debate with him, his title at it. He has become ubiquitous everywhere. And that's kind of, on the one side, of course, the media, including the critical media, and I'm not talking, Fox does the same thing, of course. On the one side, the critical media needs to point out how much he's lying, how much this and that is happening, yeah, and yeah. the latest disasters and the tweets that I luckily don't have to read, but I, <laughs> I get to see the kind of the, the worst of those anyway. Uh, and that's true. But by constantly putting him on the front page and so on, it also cements his status. He's the one. They're all pointing to him. He is doing something. And that way, of course, he has is a strong contrast to Obama, who wasn't seen as a doer. He was mm -hmm. seen as a speaker and, and a brilliant speaker as such, no, no question. Mm -hmm. But he wasn't the doer. Well, Trump constantly, he does something. He's the orange elephant in the China shop. So, um, and there's constantly this noise coming. We see turns around and the new shelf falls down. But by bringing him out that way, they have played a role in it. So the first thing is actually, how do you beat that is, tone it down. The media don't have to talk about him. He is not... I mean, many of his initiatives are not well thought through. Yeah, could be reported, but it doesn't have to have his picture and his name on it all the time or so. Mm -hmm. So there's something about the media and everyone else too. I mean, social media too is, hey, tone that down. Bring mm -hmm. the people to the front of media who deserve it mm -hmm. with good ideas, the right initiatives and so on and so on. So that's actually, there's one thing about that already. The, it's You can defeat it by actually noticing you don't actually have to pay attention to everything here. It's great for comedy. So you, mm -hmm. you maybe have to stay tuned in. Sorry. Um, <laughs> but, but on some other levels, bring it down a little bit. Yes. Other things, um, there's a long list now. There's a question how you can break this apart and stuff like that. I mean, is it about rationality at some points and mm -hmm. so on? That is tricky when people are so polarized and committed. Mm -hmm but reminding people of kind of the mission that is coming, those kind of things have to happen. It's very mm -hmm. clear on that level. In this case, it's also, um, Trump is a, he's like a good magician. It's misdirection. So he looks there, everyone mm -hmm. looks there. Mm -hmm. But then of course, I mean, like in all magical tricks, and I'm sure you're a good magician here. <laughs> um, um, when you point there, something else is happening right here. You're using mm -hmm. the other hand to do something there. Mm -hmm. And he does that whenever he doesn't like a topic, he mm -hmm. really turns to something else. So let's insist a little bit on the topics, not where he's pointing to, but what's going on here. Yes. That's how he treated the coronavirus. And I mean, I have the feeling that actually is ultimately killing him. I mean, I think now at this point, it's hard for him to recover that. He's now trying his normal strategy, is criticizing the medical doctors and stuff like that. So he can mm -hmm. one against all, he's the only one with reason and so on. Not sure whether that works this time. Yeah, we'll see. On that note, not paying attention to him, let's talk about Northern Ireland. Tell us, <laughs> <laughs> Tell us what happened in Northern Ireland with an, with an education program that was designed to increase empathy. Yes, okay. So even though I think this is a powerful example that should cautions about, caution us about empathy. It's not that empathy is bad, but often it doesn't lead to the results that people think it leads to. Mm -hmm. So Northern Ireland. Northern Ireland has a several century history of conflict between the Catholics and the Protestants. The Catholics typically saw themselves as suppressed by the Protestants, mm -hmm. but then they went back and forth. There were atrocities on both sides over centuries. And it's still very deep in the culture there. It's a very tricky place. The, the, the truce that they have right now is fragile um, and so on. So at some point, some wonderful educators had the idea to say, well, isn't it in a way that we could make the difference? So they thought that um, young people, kind of school grade six to eight, somewhere middle school age, are the ones they need to target because those are the ones who form a political identity. Mm -hmm. So they developed a wonderful, empathetic curriculum where both sides had to understand the other side. Everyone had to mm -hmm. understand everyone. So the Protestants had to also understand the Catholic suffering. The Catholics had to also understand the Protestant suffering and so on. And this was tested. It was good. New textbooks, everything, tests and so on. And it seemed to be so great. The kids did well on the test. They learned it. And the educators were willing to applaud themselves and say, hey, we did it. We did it. Now, finally, there's understanding, peace, empathy has worked. And then 
they said in people to do more qualitative interviews, including one of my colleagues here from Indiana University, Keith Barton. And they interviewed these teenagers and yeah, they understood the suffering on both sides, but this generation was more polarized than the generation before. Somehow they had taken away that, well, there's always two sides. There's a Catholic and Protestant of everything. The whole world is divided into these two viewpoints. Um, and that got more and more ingrained in them. Mm. And then, of course, in the end of the day, they knew whether they're uh, Protestant or Catholic. Mm. They might beforehand have, may have thought they were just Christians, but at, after going through that curriculum, they knew that they were the one or the other. Um, mm. So they, they abandoned the whole project. Um, oh, wow. And that's kind of one of the things with empathy. Once you have polarization, empathy is not always the best tool for it. So a lot of efforts of peace negotiations, conflict resolutions, try to not involve empathy. I mean, if you think about the truth and reconciliation process that was, for example, used in South Africa, and it was not perfect, it was not, there were many problems there, but they used no empathy. There was no idea that, the whites had to finally have empathy for the, the black African majority or other way around. It was just tell us everything bad you did, put it on the table, and there will be no prosecution. They just wanted the truth, not love, not empathy, just knowing the bad truth. And that seemed to have worked better. I mean, after all, I mean, it was a fairly, I mean, it's not an ideal transition now, but that worked. So in many cases of conflict resolution, I would be careful to bring in empathy directly because it can deepen the divide. Common things, like in Ireland, the, the, you can focus on, they, they, they have a common history. The famine 100 years ago, 120 years ago, killed everyone, Protestants and Catholics. Mm-hmm. Talk about those things, common interests. There's yeah. always common interests. Start there. Start from building up some re-feeling before you differentiated you and I. Mm, that's really interesting. Uh, and then you talk about in your book, sadistic empathy. And what is that exactly? <laughs> um, well, sadistic empathy it covers actually quite a wide range of behavior and emotions. The, the most simple way to describe it is basically the positive enjoyment that people can take out of the suffering of other people. And in the case of sadistic empathy, that can go so far to bring about the suffering of other people so that you can empathize with them. Mm-hmm. And of course, I mean, if, if, if you torture someone or kind of, or you bring them in a tricky situation, it's easier to understand to them and to relate to them because they're suffering. They have, might have physical pain or, the, or mentally they may, may be in a narrow spot. So it's much easier at that point to understand them, to share the emotions because the emotions are so clear to you. Mm. So it's a kind of a paradox in the sense that we think that empathy would be there always to, for the benefit of the other. But in that, that's for me one of these clear cases for the empathizer. It feels good to feel like another person. Mm-hmm. But in this perverse kind of situation where you kind of see the pain of the other person as a stimulus for your empathy. Mm-hmm. Now, this is kind of the overall range of this. There's many examples of that. And some, they're not all, I mean, everyone immediately thinks of like, like Hannibal Lecter or kind of yeah. psychopaths yeah, or yeah. something like that, the extreme sadists. Mm-hmm. Psychopaths may be a separate issue, but like the true sadists. And those people exist. We mm-hmm. do know that. But there's also little, tiny, little everyday behavior of people teasing each other, kind of secretly hoping that someone else, a friend even, comes in a tricky situation, and then they can relate to them, can even caress <laughs> like, them. Maybe that's why my family is so rough around the dinner table. <laughs> <laughs> of course, exactly. I mean, maybe I fall under this category of sadistic empathy too. I mean, a dinner table is exactly one of these things in the family. You do that with each other. It can even be part of a love ritual, of course, and teasing. Teasing often does mm-hmm. that actually too. So it's fairly common and human in a certain sense. I mean, to bring someone else in a situation where you can predict your, their feelings. Um, mm, and it makes you empathize with them more. And it may, I mean, that's what it's kind of like, I'm not sure if this is related, but I find sometimes when you fail, it makes people more comfortable because they can empathize. They understand that because they haven't succeeded. And yeah. so they're, it's like the crabs in the bucket and they love it. They're dragging you down with them. But then when you succeed, it's threatening. 
Yes, 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 of course. Because then they yeah. don't know how to empathize with that. And then they have to find in themselves to find joy in that. And then it's like, if I can't empathize with you, maybe you're not going to be part of us and you're going to move away because you're not part mm-hmm. of that dynamic, if yeah. that makes sense with your model. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, no, it does. I mean, it's we in, live in such an individualistic society and such um, success-driven society that yeah. the success of other people threatens many people. Of course, if it's like if it's a family member, so you usually you embrace it. I mean, mm-hmm. you're you're a joyous too, and and in many cases you can celebrate it. Or people that you identify with, like a sports hero that you have, mm-hmm. they win. That's great. But the more common situation is that the the success of other people is always a little bit a bit ambivalent about it. Yeah, I mean, like Britney Spears said, they build you up to uh, to smack you down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, like, I don't know, that's a, I think sometimes, like, because people, you call the theory of self-loss and that they, um, they lose themselves in some ways with empathizing with you. And then that brings haters because they, some part of that success mm-hmm. um, just gets to them and then they want to say something to you. Let me know if that, uh, you know, makes sense. Yeah. I mean, well, the success of other people evokes a competitive spirit in people. There can be envy, jealousy, and all of that. And that is hard. I mean, because we are so individualistic, we do tend to compare ourselves Mm -hmm. to others. It's also the social media effect. I mean, social Mm -hmm. media are great, especially when all the others are suffering. But in the moment, they are all having these successes. Mm -hmm. People feel impoverished. They feel like, okay, all these wonderful things are happening around me. Only I, where do I stand? So that's the yeah. dynamic that people describe for why social media users can often feel come out of it in a depressed way. So then you also talked about how sadistic empathy had to do with Bernie as well, supporting Bernie, supporting people who kind of logically are not going to win. I, the first time around, I thought he had a chance this time, but I guess he didn't. But um, so. Yes, 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 yes. I know, I know, I know. I mean, that's, if you kind of place your bets on the wrong horse and you kind of maybe i'm over reading the situation a little bit but i had the feeling that some of the bernie supporters especially in the end phase both in the last both election cycles when it was clear okay he's not winning the nomination Mm -hmm. who kind of put themselves into this position to say i mean bernie or not no one um Mm -hmm. um, who got really kind of burned out and some actually went over to donald trump then in the first election yes so so yeah that was that's yeah 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 i mean seeing themselves then as the victim of that too yeah of that movement feeling betrayed so nice to be victim everyone likes to be victim nowadays and portray themselves as a victim and the bernie um, mm. Certainly did that too. Yeah, I think because you said something about like punishing others provides an emotional reward, and I think if I think about that, like self righteous people call out um, all the way to like talking about like the emotional reward when someone is punished, especially in like a, a public sphere, and how that might that really, I mean that's always kind of like public that's- punishment to to make sure that some social behavior was adhered to was has been a thing since uh, you know witch burning and before. Yes, exactly. A lot of this, um, um, and I, I, you gave me the keyboard here a few times in a sense, and you emphasize that it's also something, someone who is in the spotlight in the media with yeah. all that attention now. When those kind of people present themselves as wanting something, um, yeah. wanting a huge success, they want to win something, they want to be president, or they want to whatever, want to be famous then that, that's where people kind of, I mean, they, they know what these people want. It has been emphasized to them. But then the failure of these people mm-hmm. becomes something that they um, really, it becomes almost arousingly exciting to some. I mean, when mm-hmm. you read these reports from incel people and other people there and all the trolls on the internet uh, about that, that they felt like someone deserves that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's often gender too. I mean, like female kind of people especially suffer from these very harsh mm-hmm. negative kind of criticisms. And I think it's partly because the media stylizes people in such a way that you kind of know this is this person, this is the one thing they want. So by denying them this one thing, you know mm. exactly how they will feel about it. They will be heartbroken and such a loss and so on and so on. So you can predict this. Um, you can feel like you can have empathy, the sadistic empathy, mm. you have empathy for that from the safe distance to say, hey, it's not me. 
So there's this mm. joy in denying someone what they seem to be wanting. Interesting. And then how does shame fit into this equation? Um, shame. Um, now I have to think about shame in which way I would bring it in here. Um, apparently, I, just, I bring it in in my book. Um, and interestingly, of course, uh, yeah. I don't know my own book. It's with manipulative it. empathy because a person who is ashamed is particularly readable. And so shame I, gives like a lot of power. Um, yes, exactly. Yeah. So the challenge for empathy in general is that you need to be able to read other people, mm -hmm. to predict who are they, what do they want and all of that. In everyday kind of situations, we don't read every person. Mm -hmm. The situation is whatever it is. We don't know mm -hmm. what's going on in their lives and so on. Mm -hmm. But there are these moments, these narrative moments, these episodes, these scenes where we have this incredible clarity about other people. We know what a certain person wants. We know how they're feeling in specific situations, in a situation of failure, situation of suffering, or situation of victory, um, mm -hmm. or in a situation of some other kind of highlight where something mm -hmm. big happens. That's where they become readable. And mm -hmm. shame is one of those interesting emotions there where people become readable. Um, mm -hmm. Blushing um, and mm -hmm. kind of the body language that goes along with that is perfect because in that moment, we know what's going on in that other person. Even someone who doesn't have high empathy skills can see that yeah. and that brings the here comes the sadist then again the sadist often is the sadistic empathy person is often the person who's not super strong at empathy i think so they need clear markers they need clear situation that give a strong dose for knowing that's what's going on and shame functions as one of those things so mm -hmm. then of course then it becomes attractive seeking out situations of shame and embarrassment or a related kind of feelings where you know exactly what this other person is doing and you enjoy that. You can start to celebrate. Yeah. I think about that and the way to subvert that because people like in history, like for instance, Mae West, uh, someone I talk about a lot, she um, subverts shame because she would just say, I'm proud of the thing you're trying to make me ashamed of. Cause you yes, feel people yes. and, and, and you'd say like people try to put, sh you're putting that on me. Like that's something for listeners. Like, like the, the term you might use for that, like for the emotion that's going on is you're putting your stuff on me. And that's people putting like their shame onto you to try to get a reaction. And when you are yes. proud of it, they're really pissed off. And that's mm -hmm. fabulous. And then they're going to try to try to call you other names. And they're going to keep trying to shame you. And if you could just keep saying, like, I've had someone try to shame me and they called my writing should be considered criminal. And I turned around and I put it in my bio that my writing should be considered criminal. <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. No, that's, I mean, a lot of interesting social movements have come about that way where people kind of said, yeah, I like that. I mean, you call us that, we make that our logo. I mean, we make that our title. I mean, a long time ago, there was this cripple movement where people with different abilities suddenly realized, hey, they all have these stereotypes about us and these names for us. Let's call ourselves that way and see what that happens and be proud about who we are. Yes. And that's kind of the following the same logic about it. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I remember like queer as a term too, as well, that yeah. came from that sentiment. And like in college, we put, um, we made t-shirts for queer awareness day that said, um, we're coming for your babies. Cause it's like, you want to say that we're child molest? Okay. We're coming for your babies. You know, <laughs> Burn it. Yeah. nice, nice. Um, now, about stalkers. You talked about stalkers. No, um, stalkers. Okay. They're stalker. coming for your babies. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the advocate of exploitative empathy, right? And that's stalkers, and they want to elevate themselves. Uh, is that because they're obsessed um, with that person? So they want to elevate themselves through identification with a said person mm -hmm. that they don't know. Um, and is that because they're just obsessed with getting the thing that they have? Is that what, that what it is? Yeah. I mean, I think it is people who want to kind of fill their life with something that is lacking. So in that sense, absolutely. I call this form of empathy, vampiristic empathy. Ah, um, okay. This is something where people who probably in average kind of have a somewhat hollow feeling of themselves, try to suck out the lifeblood of others and feed off their lives. 
to put others on the pedestal, to co-experience what they are doing um, and being as close to them as possible. And this form of vampiristic empathy is something that can be, in a way, very harmless if it happens from a far distance. I mean, mm-hmm. this is why we have media stars mm-hmm. where everyone can uh, and all the boulevard press kind of things where we know the anecdotes of the lives of certain actors um, and we know mm-hmm. who's pregnant and whose relationship mm-hmm. really didn't go well um, <laughs> or uh, what uh, Johnny Depp did in his marriage. There's something we picked that up. I mean, and mm-hmm. from a far distance, a tiny little bit, we are going through their lives too. That, that can be enjoyable. But for some people, that goes too far. I mean, the, the, the line is extremely fluid where people kind of want to kind of enrich their lives by going through that from others and want to live through others. So that's really the kind of key formula, wanting to live through others, using mm. these other people almost like tentacles to say this is how one lives out there. Mm. And the stalker is one of these kind of things where this goes completely too far. Most stalkers are actually people that know each other. Now, I'm not an expert on stalkers, but mm-hmm. uh, according to the data that I see, it's often relationships that have gone wrong or don't, didn't ever develop, but it's people who know each other. I mean, mm-hmm. students in the dorms who are not far from each other. Mm-hmm. It's usually male stalkers, but there's also female stalkers mm-hmm. and all of that. And they're not always harmless. I mean, there, there are some people who say, I mean, the, the statistics there, not all of them are dangerous, but there's too many are dangerous to be to ignore this. Mm-hmm. There's suddenly this, this moment of, if they can't get what they can get, this proximity, this closeness, yeah, this yeah, happens, yeah. then that happens. I also think this form of empathy, since we're in mean, stalkers, is, is not completely different from something that sounds far away from it, which is helicopter parents and stage parents too, where people kind of use their own kids as their way to experience the world, to re-experience the youth through the eyes of the kids. And therefore, they wanted to be more successful and fully successful and want to kind of push aside the little obstacles that the kids face, want to make sure they get good, good grades and do valid sports maybe or whatever it is. I mean, it's a lot of bound up with the success mm-hmm. uh, myth that we have. Interesting. I wonder, I mean, if you had a stalker and you flipped the script on them the same as with shame, could you just... If they were trying to come near you instead of running from them, what if you turned around and said, like, I'll fucking stab you right now. Get the fuck away. Like, would they give them some attention instead of not being afraid of them? Because they want you to be afraid. This is my queen solution. This is yeah, like yeah. Lauren from Queens. is like, what if you just tell them I'll fucking slit your throat? Don't fuck with me. So yeah. you t- is that <laughs> possible? Would that I, work? Uh... I'd be careful. <laughs> I don't want to try that out, you know? <laughs> I, exactly. I was, exactly. I mean, you need to be somewhat confident about that. The thing in that one is that, of course, thereby you acknowledge the stalker and you, you let them into your life, which is kind of what they want. And that's, oh. and I find like it, that in a way they, in many cases, I don't think that's dissolved. I think that's kind of like, because, of course, it indicates to the stalker, you're paying attention to them. You are yeah. reacting to them and, and all of that. So, mm. Yeah, it could, go, it could be like, I'm going to kick you in the butt, not, but nuts right now. And they're like, yes. I'm like, oh, <laughs> this is weird. Get yeah. me out of here. They might be like into it. Oh, okay, yeah. yeah, no, don't do that. Listeners, don't I, do that. I, I, no. I'm not really, I, I don't trust my advice on that one, but I, I feel like, no, I think that's, that's kind of... Um, it's kind of too much giving them what they want, namely being, yeah. being let in. And that's kind of, no. Yeah, definitely. And I thought it was interesting in thinking about vampiristic empathy is that it's not necessarily, people think like social media is creating narcissism. It's just creating, um, we're just finding ourselves too much in other people. We're, we're finding vehicles for experience, for self-experience mm-hmm. instead of finding them ourselves. So it's like, it's actually, we're having narcissism. What I think of narcissism is like, all about you and everything's about you and having to do with you. And what the common person is experiencing on social media is a loss of themselves. I have to be a little bit careful here because I'm not absolutely sure that I fully understand who's a narcissist and what really defines a narcissist. Mm. The common definition of narcissism, of course, it's, it's all about you and you draw other people into your game. Good narcissists are actually fairly clever in communication. They also reach out to other people enough to draw them in. So, I mean, that's why a lot of people fall for the traditional narcissist. 
I mean, a narcissist, um, they're not the people who just look into mirrors all the time or so, um, or not only they need to make other people into mirrors, but that takes a little while. And so yeah. there's a whole game of that process here. Um, now, why I'm hesitating to have that I say that I really understand narcissists here is that I'm also, that I'm not fully sure how their inner hollowness picks into that. I have the mm. feeling that they also, um, there might be a void in them because why do they need to see themselves everywhere? They have a need apparently to find themselves confirmed, to see that people think they're I great see. and that they are the most important thing in the world, which means that there's an absence somewhere. Yeah. Um, what about the person consuming? That's what I'm thinking. Like the person consuming yes. is, is that what it is? Yes. And that's exactly, that's where for me suddenly the narcissist is then actually moving more into the spectrum of these consumers. Exactly. Where you have people who are just consuming what they want to find and so on. But then also suddenly they, they can also have things like empathy in that process. At least certain aspects of empathy. Mm like this vampiristic empathy that they can jump into other opposites. They can enable each other here. Interesting. Um, I have a question for my dad. So I have a character question at the end of every podcast uh, for one of my characters. And my dad, I just go driving with dad. We have a series with him. And he has a question for you. So the thing is, I think you're saying is basically – Empathy is not always good and people try to help and they screw it up. Are you basically saying that everyone's an asshole? <laughs> Every other person. <laughs> Every other, of course. I mean, I know I'm an asshole. You're an asshole. Everyone's an asshole. That's what I've been telling everyone for years. So I think you just wrote a book which confirmed my theory. <laughs> I like your dad. I like your dad. I can't speak Italian quite as well. I could, I mean, uh, <laughs> yeah, no. oh, come, come he speaks Brooklyn, not Italian, to be clear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but in Brooklyn, it, I know, Italian, <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. Um, is everyone an asshole? Mm. <sighs> everyone is an asshole with empathy. And um, we are... <laughs> um, we should not overrate who we are. We should not think people are so great and stuff like that. But, but we can completely enjoy then ourselves in the company of other people like ourselves. Uh, we are not great heroes. We shouldn't lionize other people and say they are the greatest of the world either and stuff like that. But hey. That's exactly why we, we want to kind of share some emotions and stuff like that to see, yeah, how, how it is down there, down there where we all are. Mm -hmm. How can we connect? What's going on there? Um, you're not a, a rock star and I'm not an angel either. That's mm -hmm. why we need each other. That's why we need empathy, actually. <laughs> and that's a great note. And uh, do you have anything else that you'd like to share with us? Oh, I think we covered a lot. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. And where can our uh, listeners follow up with you and follow what you're doing? I am careful with social media. So I don't, I have the Twitter account that I once in a while use, but not so much. So I publish things on my website from my lab, which is www.experimentalhumanities.com. So that and of course in the press google my name and there's always something coming up and so on right and what's your twitter handle fritz breithaupt no space okay so, so you have to learn german before you can <laughs> pick up that out. or just cut and paste it from the show notes so there yes, you go exactly. <laughs> all right uh, well thank you so much thank you laura that was amazing so melania is empathy even a remote possibility for the trump family I really like that sadistic empathy. I now have a term to describe the Trump family motto, which is, you'll thank me later when I throw you under the bus. You're all just so... Be best. Thank you. For the rest of us, let's think about this. Empathy is not always a good thing, and people can often be oppressed in the process. A healthy dose of cynicism is helpful, you help people, but you're not overly attached to the result. The way to take air out of Donald's ego airship is not to give him attention like we are now. Now, you need to be careful in using empathy and conflict resolution. Think about the shared experiences of the community and, and enforcing that. 
When teasing other people, consider if you're getting something out of it at their expense. Let me know what you think. Before we go into the I Don't Care Do You segment, I'd like to do two things. First, I want to encourage everyone to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It really helps other people find us. We did move to another stream when we moved to Radio Misfits Podcast Network. And so it is really important for you to review us so that we can like bump that up to the levels we were at before. Second, I want to tell you that you can follow Reconcile the Isle on my Twitter and Instagram at Lauren Logi, L-O-G-I. And do consider signing up at laurenlogi.com slash podcast to get reminders when we publish this every other week. And also on my website, you can find out about some other exciting things going on. My book, Inside Melania, What I Learned About Melania Trump by Impersonating Her, is out now. And we're going to be on tour with the Melania Trump Roadshow virtually and sometime after then. <laughs> virtually now and then sometime in the spring, we'll have some sort of form of the show. Also, my Melania Trump rap video is out now. Listen, we have to learn how to have public dialogue again. The world's on fire and we've got to talk about it. And there is no better way to understand the importance of this by reading the headlines. So Melania, give us the top headlines in the I don't care do you segment. Here's all the things that I don't care do you about. A California fire sparked by a gender reveal party has grown to 10,000 acres. A 13-year-old boy with autism was shot by the police. Just across four U.S. cities, half of households report financial hardship due to COVID-19. Oh, maybe they can't have facial and body scrub every week. But <laughs> I don't care, do you? Thank you to everyone who has made this podcast possible. Thank you to Sophia Reyes-Jones for editing, to Devin Edwards for creating the intro, Christopher Catalano for the voiceover, Manny McLennan for making the podcast art, and a shout out to Alan Waters, Danny Holt, and Craig Franson, who helped me to conceptualize this podcast. And of course, thank you to Fritz Breithaupt for being such a wonderful guest. See you in two weeks.